Tonight, our speaker is a journalist. He's a writer. He's a broadcaster. He's the current uh, science correspondent for ITA News. Ladies and gentlemen, give it up. Alok Jha! Thank you. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, and uh, thank you all for being here when I know there's important stuff going on this evening. It's the semi-finals of the Great British Bake Off. Uh, a, a final. Is it the final, really? Oh, my God. Even more pressure. And, like, um, don't spoil it for me if you're really tweet- reading tweets about that instead of listening. I don't blame you at all. But, um, but uh, don't spoil it for the rest of us. I'm going to go and I play it later. Um, thank you so much for being here. Uh, the skeptics community, uh, the skeptics uh, groups around the country are something that I really identify with and it's a real honour to be here talking to you um, uh, I think that you know there's not enough scepticism in the world something that I try and do every day in journalism is to inject more scepticism into all sorts of things so it's really great that um, I get a chance to talk to people actually see your face and uh, you're, you're my comrades out there to sort of help uh, all with all the nonsense but let's not talk about that right now I'm here to talk about my book which uh, came out earlier this year um, it's a book about water um, as you might have guessed from the title uh, I couldn't think of a better title that was the uh, unfortunate truth as to why it's called the water book and um, I'm hoping this evening to just take you through the stuff that made me interested in what should be something quite mundane and not very interesting um, from from the surface and um, it's not a great way to start a talk about something I wanted to find interesting but I'm hoping that by the end of it this talk you'll get some appreciation for something that uh, we, we take for granted really um, so my story is about the most common, one of the most common substances in the world, and I want to make you realise how uncommon, how strange it actually is. Um, and the story starts in Antarctica. Uh, this is an expedition that I... Oh, God, is that right? It's an expedition that I was involved in. Um, about two years ago, I, I left New Zealand to go to eastern Antarctica. And East, uh, Antarctica is a very... Um, it's, it's a very distant continent. It's not very well visited. I mean, there are bases there. People do go there for all sorts of scientific research. Um, but even then, it's not, it's not like anyone can go. And it's very hard to get down there. So I was given an opportunity. I was at the Guardian newspaper at the time. I was their science correspondent. And I thought, you know, uh, you, you can't say no to an opportunity like that. And um, it, it was with... Uh, a group of scientists who were recreating one of the great Antarctic expeditions. Um, so you've heard of Scott and you've heard of Amundsen and, um, and Shackleton. And there's a fourth Antarctic explorer who in 1912, along with those guys, really opened up the continent. He's, uh, he's called Douglas Mawson. This is him. Um, he was British and Australian. Uh, he set up the Australasian Antarctic expedition in 1912. He raised the money himself by advertising um, for equipment and, and, and donations. And he, more than the others, was interested in science. And they were all interested in some science. They all did some science on their expeditions. But the others are much more focused on exploring the continent and um, getting to the South Pole. They wanted to race down there, be the first. Mawson wasn't so interested in that. He'd been on an expedition with the Shackleton uh, before his expedition in 1912. And they did got to the continent, um, but he wanted to do more science. And so he's a, he was a geologist himself. He raised the money to send, uh, to, to take an expedition down there. And so with the other three, 1912, they really opened up Antarctica in their unique ways. Um, and so our expedition, the one I was going on in 1913, uh, no, 1913, that's bloody old, 2013, uh, I'm not that old, uh, was meant to be 
an update to that expedition. Um, in the century since, uh, we they, what they wanted to do the the uh, the zoologists and the climatologists and the glaciologists on board the ship was to just look at the same tract of ocean and land that um, uh, that Douglas Mawson had really discovered and measured and look at how it's changed over the past century. And, you know, if you know anything about the environment in the past century, there have been big changes. We've discovered that we're changing the climate in irrevocable ways. And this part of Antarctica was but even in... Remote terms was very, very remote, East Antarctica, where Mawson went. So the idea was to go back there and look at this relatively untouched part of the world to see how it's changed. Um, and in fact, his measurements and his team's measurements were so good 100 years ago. And they were done literally with thermometers and, you know, people measuring temperature of the air with no particularly sophisticated equipment. They were so good, though, that you can use them still as a baseline for modern instrumentation. So that's what we were going to do. And um, we, we set off in December 2013, intending to go for a month, to go to East Antarctica, spend some time there, go to his base, which is there in, on East Antarctica, a place called Commonwealth Bay, and come back in. Um, just to um, put you in the mood for it, this is uh, his excellent uh, outfit that he took. Uh, obviously, I'm, I'm sure he had more than that, but that was one of the publicity pictures of the uh, Australasian Antarctic expedition. And... Um, you know, he he uh, he was a real leader, a pioneer. This this a hundred years later was me um, in my Antarctic outfit. You can tell I'm someone who doesn't like to go outside very much, uh, I, and I really don't. I don't I don't like places that are, are not cities that don't have Wi-Fi and really good coffee. So this was like a, a strange, strange thing for me to be doing. And you can also tell from this picture that uh, I'd also bought lots of outdoor gear, uh, which I don't normally wear or know anything about, but I wanted the best possible stuff because I knew I was going to be bloody cold and I hate being cold. So anyway, this was the beginning of my trip to Antarctica. And I stepped onto this, uh, we stepped onto this ship. Uh, it was the, a Russian polar vessel uh, in, on December the 8th, 2013. And it, this thing had been going through the Antarctic and the Arctic for decades, it was used to that sort of um, those sorts of conditions. They had a Russian crew who never smiled, uh, uh, but uh, but were very very good. Uh, and and uh, we you know we we set off uh, and you know I stepped onto the ship with kind of a bit of trepidation for all the reasons I've told you. I'm not particularly an outdoors person. Uh, I don't like the cold, uh, and you know I don't like being disconnected uh, from the world. Um, you know, and also I've never really been on a ship before. Um, <laughs> so uh, never mind spending a month on it on, on a ship so I, I just sort of realised when I was there actually it's a bit of an aside I realised when I got to the ship and they were just were taking the anchor up I, what, I don't really understand how I've got myself in this position I just sort of blindly got myself there persuaded people that I should pay for my flights and you know the Guardian should uh, publish a live blog while I'm there and we had all this stuff planned I was like hang on a minute uh, do I actually want to be here anyway uh, it happened and it was too late by then and I um, um, as a good tweeter and social media kind of guy was tweeting right to the last minute and I was thinking I'm not going to be on the internet for a month now pretty much uh, no connections with home apart from satellite phones. So why don't I just tweet a last message to say, look, I'm, I'm now, the ship's moving. And uh, I started to take pictures and tweeting and things as the reception sort of disappeared. We started to head towards the Southern Ocean. And um, within about 10 minutes, within about 10 minutes, I was just really sick. 
I mean, it didn't take, even take that long. I just realized that the ground, which normally is very solid and kind of a trustworthy friend, except when you hit it very hard, it, it, was, um, it was moving in a way that I couldn't really tell. Something in my inner ear wasn't quite right. The, you know, uh, my eyes were sort of sh- showing nothing too crazy, but my body was just confused, and it, it, I was just feeling incredibly unwell really quickly. Within two hours, I was uh, in my bunk, uh, I couldn't look at anything, couldn't read anything. I was in my bunk, just screaming inside to get off the ship. Get me off the ship. I can't be on here. And I had a month to go before I was allowed off <laughs> at this point. One month. Um, I wasn't alone, by the way. There were lots of people who were sick. But it was just awful. And, um, you know, I, I think that it's, it's, it, it, was, it was, it's kind of interesting to see why. Obviously, because if you, here's a picture of our, of our ship. Um, you look at the horizon, uh, and <laughs> tell me, tell me, you wouldn't be sick on that. That's that's a good, that's a good ten degrees or something. It seems much worse. And our ship was um, rocking ten, twenty degrees sometimes each way, just continuously for hours, for days. In fact, it went on like this for weeks and weeks. Um, uh, occasionally, it would calm down a bit, and 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 obviously, you know, I wasn't an experienced sailor, and. It, even even experienced sailors on the ship told me that um, it's very hard to predict who gets sick. Um, very experienced people sometimes often get sick. People who haven't had any, any experience whatsoever on, on ships like this, sometimes they don't get sick, but it's very hard to predict. I had my drugs and things with me, but um, uh, uh, there was a patch which you could take, which I'd put on a few hours beforehand. That wasn't working. So I went to my backup seasickness pills two hours into our journey, which I was told I shouldn't take unless it was really bad after a week, the seasickness. <laughs> Within two hours, I'd had one of those. Uh, and um, basically what that does is put you to sleep. So um, I, I just uh, slept for the first few, day or so. Um, in the end, I did get used to the seasickness, and it took me about two days, I would say. And then your body just sort of realizes what's going on and kind of calms you down. It sort of it, it, your legs and arms and things balance you out in it, almost automatically. I wasn't even thinking about it. Now, uh, many of you probably here do sail. You're probably thinking I'm a really sort of soft city boy, and you're absolutely right. Um, but let, let me tell you a story about uh, other people who've been sick here. Douglas Mawson, whose picture I showed you just now, he was a real hero of Antarctic exploration for many, many reasons. He, um, he discovered lots of parts of the continent. He um, was amazing at uh, communicating with the world. Uh, when people um, went to Antarctica at the time, they would generally disappear for two, th- two years. No one would hear from them, and then they'd come back or not in some cases. Um, and then you'd hear all the news of what happened. And what Mawson did was that he was the first to send electronic telegraph messages, essentially, uh, wireless messages, sorry, uh, from Antarctica. So there was daily weather reports from down there. Uh, he took a plane to Antarctica. He didn't fly, unfortunately, but he, he took one down there. He was a real pioneer. And um, he was also a very hardy man. Um, one of the gr- most tr- tragic stories um, is told in his in the book of his um, his uh, uh, of his expedition called Home of the Blizzard. If you ever want to read a sort of rip roaring adventure story, it's it's worth a read. Um, and in the first five, he was a prolific diary writer. In the first five days of his his voyage, um, the same voyage we were making, he was it's empty because he was also seasick for those five days. Um, and let me tell you how 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 weird that is. It's because when um, he got to Antarctica. Um, he sort of they set up a base, Commonwealth Bay, and they set out in three-man teams to go and explore 
continent. And the, uh, they wanted to link up with areas that Scott and others had, had already mapped. And he, there was a three-man team. He was in the middle. There was a sledge in front of him, a guy called Xavier Mertz, uh, who was a Swiss ski champion. And the, a guy behind him, Belgrave Ninnis, who was an army officer, a British army officer. And they went in single file, the idea being, of course, that the Swiss ski champion, if he found a crevasse, he'd be able to move around it, and everyone would move in time with him. Um, and he's, he writes that five weeks into one of these long, long treks, there's just three of them, um, he sort of he writes that um, he's, he's, they all stop, and Xavier Mertz is in front of him, and he's stopped, and he's turned around, he's looking over Mawson's shoulder, and he says, he's pointing, look over your shoulder. So Mawson looks over his shoulder and sees that Ninnis isn't there, so they all run back, and they see a big hole in the ground. There's a big hole in the ground, and uh, there's... there's um, there's, there's bits of sled sort of 10, 20 meters down in, in the ground and they hear dogs whining but nothing else and they call down and they call down and for three hours they're calling down they don't hear anything and uh, they've, lost their, they've lost their comrade they've lost their friend um, you know, their companion um, and they're heartbroken uh, Mertz and, um, and Mawson are heartbroken they don't know what to do Except they think, look, we've, we're five weeks away from our base here. We can't go on because, unfortunately, all the best dogs and all the food was on that, thir- on that, that sled at the back because they thought, obviously, that the first person would find the crevasses and they could manoeuvre the back sleds around, but, unfortunately, all the sleds had gone. Oh, the sled at the back had all the best food and it had gone. So they decided to turn back and they got five weeks from home with very little food. Within a week, they've run out of food so they start eating their dogs. Um, quick hint here, don't eat your dogs because uh, dogs' livers have a lot of vitamin A and uh, you, Xavier Mertz had so much dog liver that he in the end uh, overdosed and he uh, started to have seizures and he died. He died in Mawson's arms because uh, couldn't, he couldn't carry on any further. So Mawson's now by himself about two weeks in. And he's got several weeks more to go. He's got very little food. Um, and he carries on. He falls down a crevasse. Somehow manages to climb out again. Falls down another crevasse. But this time he's managed a jury rig, sort of a, a wooden thing onto his back from his sled to stop him from falling too far. And he climbs out. And he writes about many times falling down crevasses and climbing out. He writes also about how... The weather and wind makes his feet, the soles of his feet, the skin just falls off every day. He has to reattach his feet, the soles of his feet rather, every single day with lanolin and other things, bandage them up. And he just trudges by himself. You can imagine he's lost two of his closest friends and explorers and he's just by himself. And he knows he has to get back to his base by the end of January. And we're in the middle of January now because then the, the ship has to leave to because he can't get stuck there for the whole winter, has to go back to Australia. And so he's trudging back. And uh, by the way, he's such a good scientist that all this time, he still does scientific measurements. Every single day he measures the wind, he measures the air temperatures, and that data is still very useful for climatologists today. Eventually he makes it to near his base. Um, there's, a, there's a hill just above Commonwealth Bay where the base is. And uh, there's a cave that they used to... Sp- keep their provisions in and in that cave which they call aladdin's cave there's oranges and there's pineapples and he's overjoyed because he knows his colleague colleagues down there on the base haven't left yet 
they, they've put this stuff in there because they must it must still they must still be there. And um, he's overjoyed also because it's the first non-white things he's seen for five weeks, and it's a sign of human contact. He gets in, he has has some food, and then a blizzard hits, and he's stuck in his cave for five days, and uh, he sort of whiles away the time. You know, making, repairing his clothes and uh, making sort of crampon, uh, crampons out of his boots and nails and all sorts of things. Five days later, he sort of, the blizzard stops. He comes down the hill, sees the base in front of him. And, uh, you know, his, his comrades come out and they don't know who he is, basically, because he's so, so thin and covered in, covered in hair. And, and he's obviously not in the, his best shape. And, and he also notices as they come up to him, he notices on the horizon there's a bit of smoke and the ship had left that morning. He spent another year in Commonwealth Bay, which is, by the way, the windiest place on earth, uh, uh, because he just managed to lose the ship for one day. Now, my point in telling that story is that this is probably the hardest man in the world, and even he had seasickness. <laughs> <laughs> The the, 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 the sort of feelings and the sort of visceral reality of being on the ocean for me um, is explained in that story a little bit that I just told you about seasickness because it's only then that you realize how much ocean, how big the ocean is and how much power it actually has around you. We don't see that all the time when we're living in cities and even in the countryside here, you don't just see how powerful that force is. If you, um, if you looked from space, anyone looking from space would say that this is a water planet. You know, it's uh, 70% covered in water and it's a force of immense power. Uh, water um, is, you know, produce... Uh, we think life started somewhere in the oceans. We know that the oceans produce half of the oxygen in the atmosphere. Um, you know, it's the driver of our weather systems and shapes our continents. It's, it's, it's a big force, and our ship was this tiny dot in the middle of it all. And the reason that it was moving in the way it was in that picture I showed you, and the reason that we all had seasickness and all these things happen if you go across the oceans, is um, between 50 and 60 degrees south, right, between New Zealand and Antarctica, um, there's no land in the Southern Ocean. And the Southern Ocean is therefore one of the roughest seas in the world because the winds just whip around and around and around. And, you know, when, when I was standing on the bow a few days later, um, just looking out into this ocean, a, a sort of sight of blue that I'd never seen in my life before. Um, you know, it, it, you see these things in pictures and documentaries, of course. We're, we're, we're blessed with all sorts of pictures like that, and even pictures like this. But to sort of see it and not be able to see the edges of it anywhere around you is quite humbling once the land has disappeared. And then you realize what this force is doing to you, what's this, uh, land, uh, what this landless world is really about. And, you know, water uh, th at that point became everything, controlled everything that we were doing on our expedition. It would control more, as, and as, as we would come to realize later on. And I'll go into that later. But... Even before, you know, now, before we understood about the weather systems and the oxygen in the atmosphere and perhaps that life started down there, even before, thousands of years ago, all of our human cultures have sort of had a special place for water in some way. Um, whether it's the Bible, 
in Genesis there, God moves above still waters to create the heaven and the earth, or in other religions as well, uh, people and the earth itself is made from water. Um, you know, various rituals, religious or not, involve cleansing yourself with water. Many of you probably here can't sleep at night without hearing some water in the distance and love being around it or swimming in it. Um, obviously, you all drink it and eat it. And it's something we know is, is special. And we've always known that. And when I was looking at how to sort of tell the story of this substance, I wanted to start there with that sort of cultural idea of it. And that sense that it was the beginning of everything. I mean, we may not believe anymore that, um, that God created the earth in seven days and, and used the water to do it. But there was, something, there was something about that myth which is kind of, it's, it's cross-cultural, it's universal. And actually, there is actually a germ of truth in it. All of our water on this planet, um, all of the water inside you, is alien. It did come from the heavens. Um, it came from space. And the reason that, that, to understand that, you have to go right back to the beginning of the universe to understand where the elements of water came from, the ingredients. And so you will no doubt know that water is hydrogen and oxygen, two hydrogen atoms and an oxygen atom. And the hydrogen came from right at the beginning of the universe. So 13.7 billion years ago, the, uh, the universe is created in the Big Bang. And for the first three minutes, all of the energy that we know of in the universe is compacted into this tiny dot. And it's expanding, but it's a very small space. It's incredibly hot. <laughs> right, it's incredibly hot. Nothing meaningful is in that apart from it's just pure energy. It's just a mess. Three minutes later... Three minutes after that bang, it's just cold enough, or rather the temperature is not hot, just about at the level where it's, just, it's, it's cold enough to have the first hydrogen atoms. And the first hydrogen atoms appear. So all the hydrogen in the universe comes from that moment, through 13.7 billion years ago, minus three minutes. And then that's all there is for a very, very long time. Um, a few hundreds of thousands, millions of years later, these clouds of hydrogen, which are, by the way, not evenly distributed through, through this expanding universe, they start to clump together. It's uneven, so there there's happens to be a slightly denser clump over here than over here. And where those clumps exist, they attract each other through gravita gravitation. And then they attract each other so much that the centers of those clouds are incredibly hot, dense places where the hydrogen atoms interact and bounce off each other so hard that some of them fuse. And hydrogen, and hydrogen fuses into helium and releases a little bit of energy. And what you have there is a star. That is how all stars form. When hydrogen fuses at the centre of a big cloud and starts to shine. Um, and the fuel of, is, is hydrogen fusion. It, and helium is, is produced as a result of it. Our star shines in exactly the same way. But we're a few million years back, a billion years back at this point. The star is formed, and eventually it runs out of hydrogen at the center to fuse. And at that point, it starts to fuse the helium 
into other elements, carbon, oxygen, etc. And this continues until there's a point where it just can't fuse anymore because it takes too much energy to do that. And when that happens, the star will explode. And this is a supernova. And we've seen the results of these things in, in how many, in thousands of space telescope pictures. When, when a star explodes, it creates a nebula. This is a, this is a nebula. This is a, the Helix Nebula, 700 light years away. It's two and a half light years across. Um, it's not a real set of colors, obviously. These are just colors um, put on by NASA and the European Space Agency just to show uh, the different colors represent different elements, essentially. What you're looking at there is oxygen and uh, hydrogen and other elements that are there in the clouds. They're just essentially huge clouds of dust and gas. Uh, this is uh, the Rosette Nebula, 5,000 light years away, 50 light years across. I mean, our solar system is like a dot in the middle of that. Um, it's, not easy, it's not actually in there, but I mean, you know, if, if for size comparison. Uh, this is probably one of the most famous ones, the Pillars of Creation or the Eagle Nebula. It's uh, only four light years across. And uh, what, again, what you're looking at essentially is just a big cloud of stellar dust and gas, a stellar remnants essentially but this is where the complexity of the universe arises this is where all the elements like carbon nitrogen oxygen and denser that's where they come from um and it's in one of these sorts of clouds these one of these nebulae that our solar system formed um our sun formed from the hydrogen that was sort of floating around in one of these clouds now these clouds have all sorts of elements, as you can see, but they still have lots of hydrogen. And that hydrogen likes to attract to, each other, to itself in clouds. And again, like I said, with the first generation of stars, it forms a second generation of stars inside one of these nebulae. This time there's lots of this stuff around. And our sun did exactly that. It formed about five billion years ago inside a nebula, a bit like that one. Um, but the environment, remember, is a bit different. It, there is hydrogen, oxygen, all sorts of stuff around it. And the star is sort of warming all of this stuff as it forms. And our water is formed in that dust cloud around our sun. So if you imagine in that dust cloud, there are lots of tiny, tiny, tiny nanometer-sized bits of carbon and silicon just floating in space. And there's lots of hydrogen, there's lots of oxygen. Occasionally one of the hydrogen atoms will bounce into a carbon, a carbon piece of carbon dust, essentially. Imagine a tiny piece of coal or something. And it will bounce off. Very occasionally an oxygen atom will do the same thing. Even more rarely than that, the two atoms will actually hit the, uh, hit the grain of carbon at the same time. And they'll react in the coldness of space, minus 270 degrees, they'll react and they'll bond. Over hundreds of thousands of years, each of these little tiny grains develops a sort of coating of ice, just a tiny coating of ice. And at any point, it could just be destroyed by the UV or whatever else. So these are rare. These are, these are I wouldn't say rare, but they're, they're very hard to produce. Eventually, these grains covered in ice come together again through gravity. They form stones. They form boulders. The boulders form the chunks of planets. And by about four and a half billion years ago, so our sun's still only half a billion years old at this point, 
what you've got is the sun and the start of all our planets in their various orbits. And right at the edge of the solar system, you've got all the remnants, all the other bits of, all the bits that didn't quite make planets, um, called, we now call it the Kuiper belt, of which Pluto is an example of an object. It's, uh, these can be big objects, but they're way out there. And as our planets form, if we focus on the sort of early Earth, there's, there's lots of material there that, um, that as it comes together, it becomes very, very hot. And all the water on those grains that I've just described evaporates away because it's so hot on the surface. If you went to the if you went to this, if you went to this planet five, four billion years, four and a half billion years ago when it was forming, you'd see a hot, dry, volcanic place. There are no oceans on the surface, and if they did, there were, these small pools of water would quickly evaporate. But obviously, today, most of our planet's covered in water. So where did it come from? Well, about four billion years ago, when our planet was dry. Something disturbed the outer solar system, the Kuiper belt that I told you about. It had all these comets and asteroids, leftovers, essentially, from the formation of the planets. Something disturbed all of that. And it meant that billions upon billions of asteroids and comets and whatever else is out there started to rain down into the center of the solar system towards the sun and just collided with all the planets. Mars... Venus, Mercury, Earth, just for, for half a billion years. Um, this period is called the late heavy bombardment. And all of those rocks and boulders and ice balls brought water. They brought our oceans to this planet. And so our oceans, our water, actually the stuff on the surface, is about half a billion years younger than the Earth itself. You might ask why our planet survived with all the oceans and Mars and Venus, for example, don't have them. I mean, they would have had oceans many, many years ago, many billions of years ago. But Venus was just a bit too close to the sun. and A lot of that water just evaporated away. Mars was just a bit too far. And it meant everything on the planet froze. And there wasn't quite enough atmospheric pressure to keep the water there. And we know that Mars probably had oceans billions of years ago, which eventually evaporated. And, of course, there's been recent evidence to say that perhaps Mars still has a bit of flowing water here and there today. But, you know, that's still, that's still a little bit debatable. So our oceans are alien. They, they come from space. You know, you, you sort of have this profound appreciation. Uh, you're getting, beginning to get sort of a profound appreciation for how weird not weird the substance is but how how common it is and how its origin is not what you might have thought our journey to the antarctic uh, a week a week after we started um started to look a bit like this um you can see bits of ice floating on the surface this is about uh, seven days in the temperature of the water gets colder and colder and it's able to support more ice and it's uh, also calmer thank god um and what you're seeing here, what we, saw, what we were seeing there, was the remnants of the previous year's winter in Antarctica. So every year, Antarctica doubles in size, basically. These oceans around it freeze. And uh, by about September, October, the Antarctic summer, the oceans start to 
the ice starts to break up and, and melt and float off into the Southern Ocean. And this is what we were seeing here. Um, it's, it's sort of the remnants of the, um, of the winter. And, you know, this stuff is, is beautiful to look at. And I know that it can be kind of a bit tiring to hear people who've seen these things saying the photograph doesn't do it justice. Uh, but really, it doesn't. And, and what we start, what we're seeing in these very simple bits of frozen water were, were colors that we'd never seen before with, associated with water. I mean, the, the contrasts are very hard to see here, but the, the, the water, it's, the liquid itself was like a deep purple, and this was aquamarine and jade, and this was the most brilliant white. And if you got closer, it glittered. And these colors that you saw, which I've never seen before with water, were, were here. And Antar- the Antarctic in summer, um, the sun never goes down, uh, never actually goes below the, surface, uh, the horizon. So it's always light except for about two hours at about two in the morning, and it's sort of the, the sun will sort of graze the horizon and then come back up again. And most of the time, you see the blues and whites like this, and there's not much else color. It's, but it's almost as if when the sun skirts the horizon, all of the color of the world is concentrated into this, those two moments. And you see all of the, the apricots and the peaches and the reds and the golds and the fireworks sort of really come out. And I just wanted to show this picture because... Also, because you, know, you can see that we were getting into colder and colder places, but this was our fireworks show at two in the morning every day, and then it got bright again. That's about as dark as it got. As you get closer to the Antarctic, uh, the temperature of the water is cold enough to um, support icebergs. And these are really incredible things. This was the first one we saw, it was 50 meters high and then about 200 meters below that. And what was special about that, what was sort of humbling about it, was that these were the first bits of Antarctica that we were seeing. The ice on the surface of the water was very much the sea freezing and melting. This really was a bit of Antarctica that had snapped off and was coming to meet us. This was a good... 50 kilometers from the uh, coast still. And it, the reason these things are so big is over tens of thousands of years, as snow falls on the continents of Antarctica, it forms glaciers. And the glaciers very slowly creep their way to the edge of this continent and eventually will snap, and bits of them will snap off, and that's where the icebergs come from. And so this really is something that's been on the continent, created on the continent, and sort of coming out. Um, these things are tens of thousands of years old. Um, this iceberg, which was probably around before any human civilization, was just sort of lurking there, sort of minding its own business. And you, when, you, when you get up to close to these things, you see, again, the colors at the, at the, at the, uh, where it meets the, uh, meets the water, which are quite incredible. And you, maybe you can't quite see it on this, but just there where the winds and rains and things have carved interesting shapes into the side you can see sort of an electric blue light sort of shining out of it as if as if there was a light show coming out of it but actually it's just light going into the iceberg and bouncing around and firing itself out again um they look alive they really do and you know the the shapes of these things have been described by all sorts of explorers over over decades um, to reflect all sorts of current concerns, people have seen churches, minarets, all sorts of things in the shapes of icebergs. But as much as it's humbling to see all of that and to know that this has been around 
before humans probably settled anywhere um, and will be around probably, hopefully, for hundreds of years more. As much as all of that is interesting, I think what I want you to look at is the fact that what I think is most interesting and kind of strange in a way is that you can see this at all. This is a solid, solid water floating on liquid water. And, and things don't do that. Solids don't float on their own liquids, generally. In fact, they don't. Uh, so they just don't do that. And, and water is almost unique in, uh, as far as common substances go in having something that, when it freezes, it actually gets less dense. And again, you have to really force yourself to think about that being strange. Every time you have a drink, you've probably got drinks right in front of you now, where ice is floating in the drink. And we're so conditioned to thinking that's completely normal that we don't ever think about how strange that actually is. It makes no sense. And it gives you a window into how anomalous this substance really is. This is just one of many things that doesn't follow the normal rules of chemistry and why chemists and physicists and others have struggled to understand water and have been a bit scared of really studying it for a very long time. You know, and it might be that you think, you know, well, okay, fine, it floats. What's so cool about that? Why is that so, apart from being an anomaly and maybe getting some interesting essays out of it, what, what's the point? Well, if water... If solid water didn't float, what would be different? Well, it's a fact that if solid water didn't float, there would be no life on this planet. Why is that? Well, because if you think about the history of our planet, we've had many, many ice ages where the entire surface of the planet freezes. And so lakes, oceans, rivers, everything just freezes. And life which started in water um, at the bottom of a... Uh, of the oceans or wherever else uh, and if it was evolving over over, over time slowly 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 because evolution takes a long time uh, to uh, produce the complex things we see today it needs continuous long time if every time there was an ice age the uh, the, the oceans or the uh, or the rivers or lakes froze from the bottom up i.e. if water behaved like a normal thing then every single time there was an ice age every single species on the planet would have been wiped out and you've had to st- it would have had to start from scratch all over again and you would not have the complexity of life or probably life actually that you see today and you know all of that all of the um, uh, the, the fact that water doesn't freeze the bottom up uh, it also means that for example lakes um, in lakes the water underneath the ice is insulated. It stays above freezing at all times. So in winter today even, in lakes and uh, rivers where fish and other th- uh, creatures live, they've always got a source of water and somewhere above freezing to live because of this particular chemical anom- anomaly. And chemists don't like to study water because of things like this, because of things like this, things that don't make sense. Um, I mean, ice floating is one strange thing, but... Um, Another strange thing is that it's a liquid at all. Uh, the fact that you've, if you've got a glass of water or any liquid, in fact, in front of you now, which is probably just water, the fact that it's liquid is probably the strangest thing because at the temperature and pressure of the surface of our planet, water should be a gas. 
other things that are similar in molecular size, so ammonia or, uh, or, um, or uh, I can't think of hydrogen sulfide, H2S, these things are similar in molecular weight to water. And they are gases at whatever it is, 20 degrees Celsius and one atmosphere of pressure. Water isn't. It's a liquid. Again, if it wasn't a liquid, it'd be very useless to life and we wouldn't have life here. To understand why some of these things happen, let's look at this. I want to show you this picture. This is a water strider. And you'll, uh, you, you know what this is. It's an insect that can sit on the surface of a pond. Um, and you can see that it's not falling through the surface of, of, of this pond. Um, it's just sort of creating these little dimples. And something you might have learnt at school is that water has a very strong surface tension. It's very strong. Um, water is a very sticky molecule. It likes to stick to things, um, and which is what makes it such a great solvent. But it doesn't like to stick to anything more than it likes to stick to itself. It's incredibly narcissistic in that way. And so therefore, on this lake, what's happening is that uh, the water molecules are sticking together. And eventually, they will, the, the force between them will break, and things obviously do go through the surface of water. But for a while, for longer than other liquids, it will, stay, it will remain stuck together, and it will be very hard to get anything through it. And so if you're an insect like this, you can use that property to skate across the surface of ponds and dip in whenever you need to or, or whatever else. For you, this is a, a, for, as in, for an insect, these, this anomalous thing is quite a useful, useful property. And the fact that water is sticky is useful in plants. It's how, it's how water gets sucked up from the ground to the leaves by a process called capillary action. It's when you have a very, very narrow sort of uh, uh, tube uh, and which, which plants have uh, in their stems, and water sticks to itself so much that if there's water here, it will bring up water from underneath it, and it will just move up the stem. Same way that blood vessels, our blood vessels work, our very smallest blood vessels, the uh, water, the blood gets through um, against the force of gravity because of this ability for water molecules to stick to each other. And water molecules do stick to each other because of, um, because of something called hydrogen bonds. Now, what a hydrogen bond is, is, is when the oxygen of one molecule is attracted to the hydrogen of the other. So there's an electrostatic, electrical reaction, electrical attraction, rather, between the two. It's not a full-on chemical bond. It's sort of just a slight, like, it's just a slight association. But even that tiny association gives water some of its strange properties. Um, and it just means that water molecules like to just be next to each other a bit more than other molecules would. And for a bit longer. So that means it takes just a little bit more energy to separate two water molecules. Which means that the temperature you need to make a liquid into a gas is just a little bit higher. So all these little tiny edges are caused by these attractions between these molecules. And that's about as chemical as I'm going to get, by the way. So don't worry if you think there's going to be loads more of this sort of chemistry. I had to learn all this stuff. I'm a physicist, so this was really hard for me to learn as well. So anyway, chemistry, God, it's hard. Um, anyway, this is why the water molecule has some of these interesting properties which I'm just talking about. And what the hydrogen bonds allow water to do is if you imagine the fluid as lots and lots of molecules sort of bouncing around. As I said, they like to just stick together a little bit more than other things. But it also means that they can sort of self-organize. 
um, using these chemical, these electrical attractions. And obviously, not they don't just interact with each other. If you put something in water, they'll interact with it too. Which is why, as I said earlier, it's such a good solvent. If you put salt, sodium chloride, into water, the reason it dissolves is because sodium and chlorine in the sodium chloride crystal are charged particles and water is mildly charged so it can just tear the thing apart and that's how the the uh, the sodium chloride dissolves but then sugar also dissolves in something in a very similar way it's it's torn apart in these ways so water despite the uh, fact that you know we think of it as kind of a very non it's a very sort of uninteresting sort of background material it's one of the best solvents chemists have ever come across it dissolves everything and if you don't believe me then just look at the grand canyon i mean this is something that's been carved from water it's taken a long time but nothing else really would be able to do that it's very very corrosive it's a very sort of unpleasant material for chemists to deal with yeah but it's easy but you know no one worries about jumping into a vat of it um the other, I mean, there, there are lots of things that these water molecules can do as a result of this. Um, the the um, the fact that the water molecules have these charges also allows proteins and DNA, for example, to function properly. Um, when a protein is made in one of your cells, it's a chain of amino acids, and when it comes out of the uh, the cellular machinery, it's just this long floppy chain, and no protein functions in that way you know if you just had a long chain of amino acids it just wouldn't work and the way the proteins work is to shape themselves into a 3d form and then they become useful um and the the way they shape themselves into a 3d form is when you throw throw that chain into a, a little bit of water when it comes out when the the chain comes out of the uh of the cellular machines that make it it's goes into the into the middle of the cell which is filled with water and it spontaneously folds itself into a 3D shape because when it's made, there are bits of the, uh, of the protein that like water and there are bits that don't like water. And the bits that don't like water try and stay away from water molecules, obviously. And when, it, when they get near one, the sh- protein itself shapes itself in such a way that all the hydrophobic, the bits that don't like water, all those bits... Are sort of stacked away inside, and all the water-loving bits are on the outside of the protein, and that's how it shapes itself. DNA only works when it's dissolved in water in the same way, and it keeps itself in those shapes because of that reason. So it's doing a lot of things inside your body. It's transferring energy. Uh, those hydrogen bonds allow it to allow water to create long chains, which essentially transmit electricity and energy in and out of cells. It's a very useful, useful set of things. And this gives you a window into the fact that every life form uses water to survive. Uh, life on this planet needs liquid water to survive. Wherever we've found liquid water on this planet, we've also found life. Um, we got to Antarctica about 10 days into our expedition, maybe 8 or 9, 10 days into our expedition. And when you see this place, it's um, completely antithetical to the idea of life, really. Um, it's, this, this is just the very, one of the very first views. It's a, there's, there's a sort of glacier here, and you can see the Antarctic Plateau sort of going off into that way, and the South Pole just directly that way. 
few thousand, few hundred thousand, or hundred, few thousand kilometers. And it doesn't look like there's anything there. Um, you know, there's the, plants don't survive down here. Um, it's very hard to find animals. But, but of course, it's not impossible for life to survive down here. It's a dangerous place, but things do survive. This is some of the first things we saw when we arrived. Uh, penguins, obviously, these are Dili penguins. They're just one of the types of penguins that live uh, on the coast. And they survive because they live next to the, fro- the, the melted bits. They, they dive, they, uh, they get krill, and that's how they feed, and they take them back to their chicks. Or, or, or not, if it's not breeding season. But they survive right next to the coast. And, and you know, these things are, by the way, not very shy, so we did take quite a lot of pictures of them, if I can just in, indulge me for a second here. Here's, uh, here's a selfie with one. Uh, do you want to see some more pictures of penguins? <laughs> no? no? We also saw seals. This is a Weddell seal. Uh, again, uh, lives near the coast. Quite a beautiful thing. Um, do you want to see another penguin? There we go. <laughs> um, they do survive, of course. And it's because there's liquid water. And it's not just at the coast where there's liquid water. Even in parts of the arid, dry interiors, occasionally for a few days every year, there will be some some water. And microbes and things like that have have evolved to just take advantage of whatever's possible whatever's there you know there are there are microbes at the bottom of the ocean that live in hundreds of degrees celsius that can survive down there there are microbes in the atacama desert that survive only where it's not rained for hundreds of years but every time there is a little shower these things bloom and reproduce and then go into hibernation again Wherever there's liquid water, something's evolved to take advantage of it. The most extreme example is a, is a microbe that um, is an archaea, actually. It's a type of a very early primitive life form that can survive in um, 121 degrees Celsius. It just lives in 120 degrees Celsius water. Um, and these extreme organisms live in all these extreme places. There are, pla- there are creatures that live, organisms that can live in extremely high salt tolerance, extremely high um, UV uh, areas where the top of mountains, for example, they can, all sorts of creatures have survived to um, take advantage of any niche as long as there's liquid water. And when you start to catalogue all these extremophiles, as they're called, you begin to think, well, if life can survive in all these places on this planet, well, what about elsewhere? I mean, the one thing that we know everything, everything, everything needs as we start to redefine all these different parts of life. One thing we still know is that they need water. So water is the thing that scientists have been looking for for many decades now out in space. And the reason is because that is your basic assumption for life somewhere else. Um, if water, ex- if life exists in extreme situations here, well, there are plenty of extreme situations with water elsewhere. What if life survived in those places too? Um, and we've been searching for places for a very long time. This is a, a moon of Saturn called Enceladus. And the surface is covered in ice, hundreds of kilometers thick. We've known that for a long time. And what you can see here are um, pictures taken by the Cassini space probe. These are geysers of water coming out. They were unexpectedly found only a few years ago. Um, no one thought this, this was going to happen. And they are just jets of water coming out. What it shows you is that there's liquid water underneath. 
And in fact, it has been confirmed that underneath these hundreds of kilometers of ice, there are oceans as big as the Earth's. And not only are there oceans, they're warm oceans, and they're sitting on rocks. Um, and that's really kind of magical, because how did life on Earth start? Well, some of the best ideas about how life on Earth started are warm oceans sitting warm water sitting on rocks essentially hydrothermal vents at the bottom of the ocean spewing out very hot water and the energy was there the minerals were there the water was there to sort of start the first proto cells the the precursors of cells and metabolism and all these chemical reactions that then became life started down there so the conditions are ripe now i'm not saying that there is life here we don't know and we won't know until we sample that water and bring it back to really analyze it but the fact there is water there, the fact that there is liquid, liquid and hot water there is the most exciting thing so, uh, currently. And obviously not just here. Uh, another moon of, um, of Jupiter, um, Europa, has oceans underneath its ice surface. Um, we're finding thousands of planets outside our own solar system. Only in the last five or ten years have we confirmed these. And at the moment, all we can see are shadows of these things, but the technology is getting better to be able to image. And again, we're looking for water on these planets because we think the more opportunities you have, the more environments you have, one of them is going to have to be suitable or similar to ours on Earth, or at least primitive Earth. And, that, and we look for water for that reason. Because the thing is that alien life, if we were to ever find it, it might just be pond scum or something. I'm not talking about inte- intelligent aliens here. Um, and by the way, it's more likely than you think because you know, there's probably trillions of planets in our solar system. That's the, late, the, the, the latest estimates suggest that's how many there might be. And of those trillions, at least a couple of billion, and I'm throwing around numbers like nobody's business here, but a couple of billion, this, this is, these are the probabilities, a couple of billion will be of the right environmental conditions to have liquid water. Um, and we, obviously, the next generation of space probes and telescopes are going to be looking for other elements to then cement that case further. But going back to what we might find, even if we don't find intelligent life, that's a different thing altogether, if we were to find microbes up there, um, it might not be that they use proteins to build themselves like we use proteins. They might not even use DNA, actually, to transmit information between generations. They might use a different molecule, a different mechanism, even, but they will use water to do all the other stuff that they need to do. And they will use water to bind it all together. People talk about life on this planet as carbon-based. And that's true if you're talking about the bricks. But really, how it functions, how it works, is only possible because of all the chemical weirdness and the chemical properties of water. So water would be our only connection to these bits of pond scum. And I say scum in the nicest possible way. That sounds awful. Pond life. You know, if you think of a liquid, if I ask you to think of a liquid, you're undoubtedly going to think about water. Um, even if you think about something else, you know, whether it's blood or beer or apple juice or something, what you're thinking of actually is just water with stuff in it. That's mainly what you're thinking of. We are 70% water. Um, it's so common and so familiar that we completely forget about it on a daily basis. Um, we drink it, we wash with it, uh, we immerse ourselves in it, we sort of um, clean things, we dry things. I mean, we just don't think about it. And the strange behavior that I'm trying to describe to you, trying to force you to think about, the only reason we can see any of it is because we live on a planet that has the right environmental conditions to 
allow us to see all the edges of the different phases of water. Um, you know, it, uh, this, is, this is the only material on Earth uh, where you can have a solid ice, a liquid water itself, and a gas in the same place, in the same room. If you, if you had literally a glass of water with some ice, you'd have all three in one place. And again, elements, the compounds don't, don't generally tend to be in the same place in all three phases. We live in that planet where that can happen. And so water is sort of, exists here for that reason. And it, our lives are molded around it for that reason. You have to force yourself to realize how weird the substance is. So if you've got some water... I'd like you to just you know, take it out or look at it and just, just sort of appreciate that this featureless, colorless, tasteless substance is really what has shaped our entire world, our entire civilization, our, our culture. And, and the more we examine it, the more questions there are about how it behaves and why it behaves the way it does. And I suppose what I was trying to do with the book and what I still came away with at the end was that this, this stuff um, that we study and try and understand, uh, this, this stuff that is surprising on so many levels, is so common, is something that we are all made of, and yet still, despite being common and what we're made of, it's still a complete mystery. Thanks very much.